Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to My Guest List Pod, a little show with a big goal to spread the word about interesting and entertaining podcasts and podcasters. I'm your host, Darren, and thanks for joining me once again for another review and recommend episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me at My Guest List Pod everywhere you look, and especially at MyGuestListPod.com, where you will find previous episodes, links to my social accounts, previous guest profiles, and how to register as a guest how to support and contact the show, and my voicemail. And if you're a new listener to the show, this is how one of these R&R episodes normally plays out. I begin with an explanation as to what the show I'm recording is all about, then move on to why I like it, and then finish with the recommendations as to who I think might appreciate the podcast up for review. During the episode, I include audio grabs, or part of an episode, to give you more of an appreciation as to the show's format, appeal, and unique qualities. Now that's out of the way, the next podcast on deck for the R&R treatment is a history-slash-comedy podcast called You're Dead to Me. You're Dead to Me is a product of BBC Podcasts and The Athletic for BBC Radio 4, and the creative mind of its host, Greg Jenner. Show scripts are written by Greg Jenner and Emma Gauss, and research is done by a cast of many. The podcast began in September 2019, and as of recording, uh, has an impressive 112 episodes. The show is released weekly and usually runs anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, depending on whether you listen to the full show or the radio edit. The difference between the two shows is simply that the radio edit is a bit more concise and has the naughtier bits taken out, so a bit more kid-friendly. Now, I know history isn't everyone's jam and can be a little dry for some, but before you decide to skip this episode, bear with me because this is a history podcast with a very entertaining twist. The way it's described on Apple Podcasts and by its host, You're Dead to Me is a comedy podcast that takes history seriously and brings together the best names in history and comedy to learn and laugh about the past. I personally think it's a history podcast that's funny, but six of one, half a dozen of the other. This is the way Greg frames it for his listeners. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead to Me, a comedy podcast that takes history seriously. My name is Greg Jenner. I am a public historian, author, and broadcaster. And in this show, we mash together historical high flyers and class clowns until your brain is positively abuzz with book learning. Each week, Greg Jenner presents an historical-based topic to be discussed by him and his two guests in an informative but light-hearted manner, one guest being an authority on the topic up for discussion, and the other a comedian that brings the funny, and at times some poignant and unexpected points of view, but mostly it's the funny. The podcast also has some regular segments that give the show a familiar structure each week. So, why do I like this podcast? Firstly, it is well documented in previous episodes of these review shows that I'm a fan of history and have enjoyed many other history podcasts over my years of listening. Also, I like to laugh as much as the next person, so combining history and comedy is a natural home run for me. If it's done properly, that is. And Greg Jenner has a history, see what I did there, of doing history and comedy correctly. My first introduction to Greg's work was with a fun BBC TV show called Horrible Histories, where he was chief nerd and part of the crew that produced factual sketch comedy aimed at educating children. This show was a favourite program for my kids and I to watch together and very entertaining. 
Horrible Histories was one of those sneaky shows where the kids would laugh at the funny accents, out-of-period phrasing, and slapstick humour, while also learning about the past without really realising it. The show would highlight an interesting story from history, usually one full of battles, murder, disease, and betrayal, all of the good stuff, and present it in a comical format. In this way, it made learning about some of the more unpleasant parts of history an enjoyable and comical experience and less confronting for the youngsters. It also gave the kids an idea of what it was like to live in those times. All in all, a very fun show. I then came across another of Greg's educational history productions in the form of a podcast-cum-radio show called Homeschool History. This show is very reminiscent of the Horrible History TV show in that it presents a history program aimed at educating kids just in an audio format though. Although it is just audio, the show is still full of funny voices, inserts and sound effects to make the learning interesting and fun. Take a listen. In fact, she might not have worn many clothes at all, except in the winter when she popped on some warm furs. In 17th century Powhatan culture, women and kids had lots of important jobs to do. They built houses, made mats and crockery, farmed, prepared food and animal skins, collected water, looked after very small kids, and much more. They were even hairdressers to the men. And Matawaka would have learned to do all of these things, even as the daughter of the powerful chief Powhatan. Can you imagine the British royal family doing a bit of building work, knocking up some plates, and giving Prince William a bit of a haircut? We are very normal in that sense. A lot of what we can learn about Matawaka comes from two different places. Firstly, there are something called oral histories, which are a way of passing down history through storytelling. Now, this is very important for Native American people to keep their traditions going. Now, we also have the historical documents written down 400 years ago by English colonists about their time in America. So, it seems inevitable that I would enjoy your dead to me, right? Well, it wasn't necessarily a sure bet that this was going to be the case as I did have trepidation about what the introduction of a professional comedian may have on presenting the historical information. The last thing I would want is to get into a really interesting part of a story and then have someone interject in an attempt to be funny, purely because they are expected to be funny, thus ruining the flow of the discussion. Fortunately, this is generally not the case with your Dead to Me, as Greg often gets comedians that have a vested interest in the episode's topic and are genuinely curious as well. As in the case of the Ashanti Empire episode, where the comedian Sophie Duca is actually of Ghanaian heritage, and she was very interested in the history being presented, while also keeping up her end of the bargain by providing humorous comments and questions where appropriate. The comedy is thus usually natural and not forced, creating the perfect mix for this type of show. The other thing I like about this show is its length. While the research is detailed, It's concise, and the host and the guests don't get too distracted while presenting the information. As I mentioned, I tend to listen to the radio edit, which is about half the length of the complete show, but the full show is only usually an hour long, so you're not talking a huge investment of time either way. And as I'm a huge fan of Dan Carlin, an hour of investment is child's play. But that's also the show's appeal. I'm not always in the mood to devote 12 hours to a topic like I do with hardcore history, and Your Dead to Me is a perfect alternative. Also, as a shorter show, there are a heap more topics that can be covered and explored, and possibly then ignite the flame of curiosity for further individual research. One of the other reasons that I like this show is the way that Greg steers the conversation and interacts with his guests. 
I think it's a remnant from his horrible history days, but Greg always seems to bring up some odd fact or practice that drives some comical yet interesting discussion. Here is an example of this from the ancient Greek and Roman medicine episode, which is full of phlegm, mucus, and beaver bums, and also one of my favorite shows. Actually, at the Asclepian Temple in Pergamum in modern-day Turkey, when you enter into the temple, it's lined with these shops or stalls, and we know that some of them were pharmacists, and so it's pretty clear that they were in cahoots with the priests. I may not know much about medicine, but I admire a hustle when I see one. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time as we have those priests and those temples, we also get the rise of professional medicine. And the most important in the the Greek world is probably Hippocrates of Kos, born around two and a half thousand years ago. He invents the concept of diagnosis and of prognosis, of saying, I know what's wrong with you, and I know what's coming next. But what was sort of slightly gross about it is that some of his techniques, Christy, were... I mean, he, he drank people's urine, he tasted their earwax and their m- mucus and nasal phlegm and all sorts of things. And he was like, mm, I think it might be scurvy. So <laughs> I can taste what's wrong with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. He and other medical writers introduced a pretty significant paradigm shift in that he thought that sickness could be explained entirely in terms of changes in the body, not the gods. And medical writers like him set out to diagnose what exactly it was that was going wrong inside of a patient's body by looking at these signs or what we would today call symptoms. There was resistance to these new ideas. The Greeks in particular looked at these professional doctors and went, what's that? No, I'm sticking with my gods, thanks very much. How did they overcome that? It took a lot of persuasion. So we have early Hippocratic writings. Uh, The Art of Medicine is one of my favorite texts. And it's just a litany of criticisms and skepticism about the new science and responding to them one by one. But the other approach is just to fold medicine and religion together. The doctors would appeal to the gods for help. They would say that the gods were the ones who showed them the remedies. We've got some aspirin. And don't worry, do you want the blessed aspirin (laughs) or the unblessed aspirin? Great! Although there was stubborn resistance, gradually doctors do sort of gain a bit more prominence. And by 46 BCE, Julius Caesar conferred Roman citizenship automatically on all Mm -hmm. foreign doctors. But Stu, I'm going to ask you about what you think the four humours might have been. Four humours, I guess, are going to be uh, slapstick, (laughs) prop gags, one-liners and shaggy dog stories. (laughs) Um, I want to say bilge, but I think I'm conflating bile and (laughs) phlegm. Christy, do you want to put him out of his misery? Yeah, so ancient folks thought that the body was made up of four different substances. Blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. So two different kinds of bile. There is this idea that these four humours, if they get out of balance, can tip you towards a certain mood and also, of course, into bad health. So that then brings us to the theory of opposites, which is also something we get from Hippocrates, but also then later on it's popularised by Galen, who's a very famous doctor in the Roman world. And the theory of opposites, Christy, is that you're kind of trying to tip the other way. If you've gone one way too far, you're like, oh, no, back the other way. So how would that work if Stu had a nasty head cold and a bit of mucus and a bit of phlegm and he's a bit bit under the weather? The ancient physician would say phlegm is the problematic humor and there's an overabundance of that humor. And they thought that all of the humors had certain qualities on the spectrum of being hot or cold or moist and dry. 
phlegm is the cold and wet humor. And so in order to restore our balance, we need to prescribe treatments that counteract those qualities. And so this could be done in lots of different ways with food that's hot or dry. So spices, garlic, fermented foods and drinks, or you could send your patient to a hot, dry climate Or you could prescribe an exercise regimen that would heat and dry them out and so on and so on. The look on my face there was because I was sure you were going to say it's the opposite. So if he's phlegmy, we've got to make him drink some black bile. (laughs) (laughs) We've mentioned Galen there, and he's a huge name because not only does he write a huge amount of stuff, we have so many of his books, but he also treats gladiators and Roman emperors. Does that mean, therefore, that he is the authority, you cannot argue with him? Or was there still debates about medicine and how best to treat people? There were multiple schools of thought in the ancient world about what caused illness. And a view of another physician who was working in Rome about the same time as Galen, Asclepiades, became very popular. And he believed that the body was made up of atoms and that illness was caused by the atoms not being able to move freely and regularly throughout the body. Uh, especially when the body's pores or channels were too constricted or or were too loose. It sounds like an X-Man. Just like, your atoms are too loose. <laughs> you need to tie it up. <laughs> Whether he's right or not, I want his treatment. So his treatment was massage, <laughs> to loosen the body, exercise, right? Move your body. His motto was swiftly, safely and pleasantly. That's Virgin Trains, isn't it? Yeah, it does sound like a kind of, yeah, we'll get you there. We'll get you there safely. Very literally. Um, yeah, but if the alternative is you get a poking and a scraping and a bunch of bile in your eye, probably <laughs> there's a certain amount of success with that. We've heard quite a lot about systemic thinking about the body. Let's hear now about some actual cures. Stu, I'm going to read you four possible cures. Which of the four is the real one? Number one, if an organ hurts, hold a puppy close to that uh, part of their body and the puppy will suck out the disease and the pain with its mouth. Number two, if you've been bitten or stung by a snake or a scorpion, you need to eat some human earwax, preferably from someone injured. Number three, if you've got epilepsy, then you just need to drink some gladiator blood. Simple. Or number four, if you've got a headache or a migraine, then you need to zap yourself with an electric eel or a torpedo fish. I'm not having the puppy one. That's nonsense. <laughs> uh, so electric eel for headaches. That could work, couldn't it? In a kind of an electroconvulsive kind of... Certainly it'd take your mind off the headache. Epilepsy. Would they have diagnosed epilepsy? I don't know about that one. And what was the other one? Bitten by a scorpion or a snake. Eat human earwax from someone who's been injured. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but it has the <laughs> ring of truth. <laughs> I think I'm going to go electric eel. I think that one's real. To a certain extent, we've screwed you here uh, because they're all true. Uh, all, oh, all yeah! True. Okay. <laughs> Even the puppy! Uh, puppy is true. <laughs> it's really fun. <laughs> the other thing that was more widely available and probably more sensible than electrocuting yourself with an eel would have been pharmacology, plant-based cures, of which we have over 700 in later Roman texts. Right. But there were still problems in this because the word pharmacon, from where we get the word pharmacy, mm-hmm. meant in Greek... Both drug and poison. Oh, that's handy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So plants, particularly subspecies of the same plant, one of them could heal you and the other one could kill you. And so... You did not want to just take drugs from anyone off the side of the street. (laughs) You wanted to get your drugs from an expert. We have a thriving drug trade in the ancient world as well, um, with pharmacologists setting up shops and stalls in local marketplaces. So pharmacology and, of course, also diet was also really important too, wasn't it? We we know that uh, professional doctors are giving dietary advice to saying, eat this, don't eat that, exercise. But in terms of the spread of, of medicine, 
through the Roman world. We do know that eventually, you know, we've heard Julius Caesar in 46 BCE gives natural citizenship to all foreign doctors, which means presumably doctors are starting to come in. And some of these doctors are enslaved people. They're going to be ancient Greeks who've been conquered by the Romans and enslaved and brought in because they're educated. Yeah. So most physicians would have been trained by being an apprentice. And if you could afford it, you might travel to one of the big cities like Athens or Alexandria or Smyrna, where there were medical centers. And there they could hear lectures from prominent medical thinkers, or they could sharpen their anatomical knowledge by looking at full sets of human bones. There was no centralized medical association that issued medical licenses. You could just lie if you wanted to. Patients really had to rely on word of mouth reputation. There presumably would have been some doctors who, Galen, for example, he worked in Rome, right? But most other doctors are probably, they may be on the road a bit. Yeah. If you're not doing well in a city, if you're killing a lot of your patients, you're going to want to get out of town (laughs) as soon as possible, right? Always been my rule. (laughs) (laughs) But also doctors, even those who are quite good, they need to find enough clients to make a living. There's a small subset of physicians uh, who stayed in place, and these were known as city physicians. These were folks who earned a widespread reputation for success or who had impressed a particularly wealthy, influential client in town. And so these cities, these city councils would pay city physicians a retainer fee simply to keep them in town so that they were available when needed. The patients would still pay the physician fees for services. So this was the gig you wanted. At Pompeii, which I'm sure you've heard of, there was a surgeon working in in the town, except he was right on the edge of the town next to the exit road. Basically, it was the last stop before the cemetery. So uh, you kind of went to him. And if he didn't cure you, next stop, Morgsville. I mean, Christy, he was a surgeon. Presumably he was going to be doing kind of emergency work, perhaps. So surgeons were a slightly different class than physicians. Most of the time, physicians tried to to avoid cutting open their patients. So surgeons were the professional class, the the tradesmen uh, who did this kind of work. And it was incredibly risky, uh, mostly because of the high rates of infection. And the necropoli, the cemeteries were directly outside of the gates of cities. So He was set up as close as you could be to the cemetery. Yes, ideally up a hill at the foot of which was the cemetery. (laughs) And then when things went wrong, you could just pull a lever. (laughs) Just sort of slide out. (laughs) We've been talking about men so far, Christy, but actually we do know of women in the ancient world who were not just midwives, not just sort of, you know, folk healers, were trained physicians who were well-respected. Yeah. So early on in medicine, there was a professional class of women healers, uh, healthcare professionals that were often called midwives or obstetricians, though there's some indication that these women were general practitioners who treated a wider array of illnesses beyond just pregnancy and childbirth. And from the Hellenistic period onward, the titles start to catch up with the work that they're doing. They start to be called physicians. So iatrine in Greek and medica in Latin, these are the exact same terms that get attributed to men physicians. And we have over 50 attestations of women physicians, many of whom rose to prominence, including Antiochus of Tlos, which is a city in modern day Turkey. Uh, She was elected by the city council as the city physician. So she must have had some chops to get that job. 
And her work gained renown even outside the city. Asclepiades, who we were talking about a moment ago, and Galen both cite her remedies. As well as lots of evidence for women working in, in healthcare and medicine, we also now should talk really about women's health and in terms of the way in which women were treated as patients. And humoral theory said that men were hot and dry and women were wet and cold. We now have to get on to the somewhat strange concept of uh, the wandering womb. The idea here is that women's bodies are different to men's in very profound ways. There is a Greek physician called Aretaeus who argues the womb is a separate animal living inside a human and that it is sort of parasitic and it needs moisture. And if things dry up, it will go looking for moisture. So medical writers thought that because women were colder than men, they didn't possess the heat necessary to digest food. So women accumulated their partially digested food as thick menstrual blood. And once a month, this is month uh, in Latin is menses, uh, it required this enormous effort to push this thick menstrual blood out of the body. But this overheated the womb. So the womb became dry and hot. It's now parched because it's lost all of its moisture. And so the reasoning is that it's wandering around the body looking for moisture to soak up from nearby organs. And one of the remedies for menstrual problem or the wandering womb was to have sex. Now, Stu, we have promised you beaver bums. So now is time for beaver bum updates. Oh God, is it finally time? Come on then. I would like you to guess how else, apart from recommending that a woman have sex, how else might the wandering womb be lured back into place? And this is something to do with beaver bums. I have got, I feel like I'm having a breakdown. Are we going to introduce something into the lady in order that the womb be charmed back down to its correct yeah. place? <laughs> Bang on. Oh, Christ. Why nice. did you do this? to me <laughs> there's another method as well which is not just lure down with charming but also scare down with something nasty from the top oh it's shouting at the top of the head get back down there you womb uh, even more disgusting yeah can, <laughs> oh god uh, can we now have our, our beaver bum update and also just a sort of general guide to how was this done what nice smelling things are we talking as you mentioned greg medical writers like Eretaeus thought about the womb as a little animal that was receptive to pleasant things and repulsed from unpleasant things and so you would put sweet smelling fumigations underneath the vagina like cardamom cumin anise fennel and here's the less exciting part. You would either have the woman inhale foul-smelling things like smoke from a burning goat or force her to ingest disgusting drinks like castorium, which is a substance extracted from beavers. And fun fact, also used in modern vanilla flavorings. <laughs> oh, my God. Castorium. This is shellac and beetles all over again. Castorium is disgusting beaver bum gland produce. <laughs> right. And it's made in van vanilla. It's added to vanilla products, I think, yeah. It's, uh, so, uh, to me, if, it's, if it's not beaver bummy enough, chuck a bit of castorium <laughs> in it. Christy, we've got no real mention here of painkillers or anaesthetics. Do we think they had any? Yeah, they certainly knew about painkillers. So they knew about mandrake, henbane, and especially opium. The other thing I like about the show is that while it deals with some of the better-known eras or aspects of history, it also explores some of history's lesser-known points and figures, at least lesser-known by me, that is, such as Ibn Battuta, Njinga of Ndongo and Matamba, and the history of chocolate. 
two people I knew nothing about before listening to this podcast, and a topic that honestly, while very interesting, also made me hungry for a Mars bar. So who is going to appreciate this wonderful show? Well, if you liked horrible histories as a child or even as an adult, then this is going to be right up your alley, especially if you are a bit older. The same playful educational style is still there, just in a slightly more serious and mature format. If you like other podcasts such as The History Chicks or That Was Genius, the TV show Making History or the book The Decline and Fall of Practically Everybody, great figures of history hilariously humbled, then I think you will also get a kick out of your dead to me. Generally though, if you have a sense of humour and even a passing interest in the history of the world and its notable events and people, then you will love this fantastic UK-based show. That's it for another week. Thanks for listening once again, and as usual, I'll chat at you again next episode.